Support for My Fellow Kansans was provided by the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund, working to improve the health and wholeness of Kansans since 1986 through funding innovative ideas and sparking conversations in the health community. Learn more at healthfund.org. Corey Brown grew up in Kansas, in Wichita, but her career as a journalist took her away from the state to more populated and largely more prosperous places. Recently, her job brought her back and gave her a chance to travel the state's back roads. It's a beautiful place. I had mornings when I would be driving at dawn, mm-hmm. and I, I it took my breath away. I've had that experience. Every corner, every segment of this state, which I had never done, even as a kid. And there were so many things that I hadn't seen before. Brown came back to pursue a story about farming and food and found a place more emptied and gloomy than she remembered. It wasn't what I came looking for. I didn't think that's what I was going to find. The continuing march to more efficient farming that she found upon her return, more acres being farmed by fewer people, has sped the hollowing out of parts of the state, a trend that began well over a century ago when Congress's passage of the Homestead Act enticed thousands of settlers to stake claims and start plowing up the prairie. But it's a trend that's been picking up speed in recent decades. You know, it's not like this is something happened and it's going to correct itself. It's a trajectory Mm -hmm. that is only going to become more and more dramatic. Brown sees Kansas, at least its rural expanses, as a place virtually doomed to wither away. Outposts with a storied past, but no future. Yet many who remain in the state's small and shrinking towns push back. They see something, a way of life, a community, a family farm that can be saved, maybe even revived. We're here to talk about where the truth lies. I'm Jim McLean, and this is My Fellow Kansans, a podcast from the Kansas News Service. There's three questions that we want you to address tonight. That's the lieutenant governor of Kansas, Lynn Rogers. Like lots of politicians before him, he's looking for ways to bring prosperity back to places that keep getting smaller and, for the most part, poorer. At each of the places he stopped during his recent quote-unquote rural prosperity tour, Rogers posed the same three questions. Uh, The first one is, what is prosperity? How do you define it? The second question is, what are you doing right? And then the third question would be, would be, what stands in your way to prosperity? Maybe it's local, maybe it's state, maybe it's national, maybe it's attitudes, whatever. We need to hear from you uh, in those regards. But let's go ahead and start up here. If we had somebody that would volunteer, uh, you don't necessarily have to. And then I think probably a common thread through all rural communities is the failing infrastructure, whether that be roads or sewers, water, buildings. Um, I think that's, there's a lot of money that has to be invested to maintain where we're at. All right, thank you very much. I'll focus on the ideas coming out of those listening sessions in the coming weeks. I'll also highlight work being done by the new Kansas House Committee on Rural Revitalization. Republican Representative Don Heineman, a farmer from Dighton, chairs that group. It's looking into what the state can do to help rural communities address some of their biggest challenges. Things like high-speed access to the internet affordable housing, and health care. It's a difficult challenge. It's frustrating because we are limited to some extent in, in the amount of success that we can have. 
but it, it's imperative that we try and, and do what we can to bend the curve of declining populations and, and declining economic activity. Generally, I think it's safe to say that expectations for both Heinemann's committee and the initiative Rogers is spearheading for Democratic Governor Laura Kelly are modest. Inspired partly by Corey Brown's view that rural Kansas is a glass half-empty and leaking, I decided to take a fresh look at the state that's always been home to me. I spent my formative years in Parsons, a city of nearly 10,000 in southeast Kansas, and that's a corner of the state that's struggled for decades as coal, lead, and zinc mines petered out sometimes leaving Superfund sites behind, and as good-paying railroad and manufacturing jobs evaporated. As a Statehouse reporter for more than 30 years, I've watched rural lawmakers scramble to stop the depopulation of their districts, the boarding up of their main streets, the consolidation of their schools, and the closing of their hospitals. So when I read Brown's article, it seemed generally on target to me. But the Kansan in me wanted to see if she had missed something, if she had overlooked reasons to be more optimistic— While some communities seem to have given up the struggle, not every place is doomed. To have a fighting chance, communities must have a core group of smart, energetic citizens willing to step up over and over again to meet whatever challenges come their way when it can be so easy to give up. And they need help from the outside, money from state and federal taxpayers to help pay for essential things that their shrinking tax bases can no longer deliver. Roads, schools, safe drinking water, and health care. But getting back to Corey Brown and her travels through the state, she came to investigate how Kansas, the nation's breadbasket, could end up with food deserts, places with no grocery store and no easy access to fresh produce, and sometimes places where you have to settle for a slice of Casey's pizza instead of a made-from-scratch meal at a local cafe. That didn't make sense to her until she got here. As I'm driving around to these small towns, I realize there's no one here. This isn't about a food desert. This is a people desert. Mm-hmm. And that's when I had to sort of recalculate and recalibrate what's happening here. Brown's article came out last April, headlined, Rural Kansas is Dying. I drove 1,800 miles to find out why. The answer is revealed in a subheadline that reads, A native Kansan returns home to find that the broken promises of commodity agriculture have destroyed a way of life. Put another way, the small and medium-sized farms that for decades have sustained rural communities and a way of life are getting gobbled up by big farms that need to get even bigger to survive. And because of new technology, more sophisticated tractors and combines, GPS mapping systems that improve both efficiency and crop yields, it takes fewer farmers to work those bigger farms. There were 135,000 farms in Kansas in 1950, average size 374 acres. Since then, the number of farms has dropped by more than half, to roughly 58,000. But the average size of those that remain has more than doubled to nearly 800 acres. It's not that there's less acreage being planted. It's planted within an inch of its life, and it's growing tons of crops. It just doesn't require very many people. Mm -hmm. And that's what I didn't appreciate, is how few people you need with the kind of mechanization that we have now. Those changes and others, brick-and-mortar groceries and hardware stores put out of business by Walmart and Amazon, accelerate depopulation, an old trend picking up speed. More than half of Kansas's 105 counties average fewer than 10 people per square mile. Brown's so-called people deserts. They're created, she argues, by a modern farm system that coerces farmers into growing wheat, corn, cotton, and soybeans 
in slavish devotion to fickle markets that often fail to pay even a break-even price. Uh, corn and wheat futures sharply lower after the long three-day holiday weekend. The initial report reaction was to the downside, but after a few minutes of digestion... 1-10-32, the outmunch, though, lower. October on Friday afternoon, all the primal cuts were reported lower. Lean hogs for So when I was driving around, there were mountains of grain piled up next to the grain elevators that were full to bursting because prices were down and everyone was hanging in there hoping that prices would go up just enough, just a little. I mean, it's just whatever the price is at that moment in time is what you get paid. It doesn't matter how high the protein levels are in your wheat. It doesn't matter how good you were at limiting your fertilizer use to do right by the land. None of that stuff comes back to you in a higher price for your goods. And so it discourages people, some, some of those farming practices, because really the name of the game is to grow as much as you can, because it's a volume business uh, more so than anything. Right. That's the only thing you can really try to control. But then everyone's doing a bang-up job of growing more and more of this thing that has a commodity price. So that depresses the price. So the better they are, the more effective and efficient they are at growing those crops, the lower the price goes. And that's the irony you found, that Kansas farmers are as successful at what they do as they ever have been. But that's not necessarily a good thing. Correct. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, it's not... Like this is something happened and it's going to correct itself. It's a trajectory Mm -hmm. that is only going to become more and more dramatic. And there's going to be less and less need for schools and less and less need for banks, less and less needs for all the other things that support a community. I couldn't find anyone in leadership saying, okay, how do we rationalize the world of rural Kansas? How do we help people? I mean, there's no broadband strategy. There's nobody with a great idea for broadband out there pushing it. I couldn't even find anybody who could tell me what it would cost to roll out broadband across the state. They hadn't done that fundamental work. Nobody is taking this depopulation seriously. And then it hit me. They just have accepted it. I think they're supposed to be doing something to change the trajectory. trajectory. And what is actually happening is everyone is accepting it as rural Kansas is going to die. You didn't find anybody out there who's, you know... uh, engaged in this kind of uh, Don Quixote-like fight, you know, raising their fist against all these forces, saying, no, we need to stop this trajectory. There were plenty of people who didn't like my story. And I heard back from them saying, you don't understand. We're fighting the good fight, and we're doing fine. And they were from towns that I knew and had been in before that have lost a third of their population in the last generation. And they're on track to lose another third. They were completely in denial. Their their main street had no shops in it. And they said, but we've moved our shops and all of our businesses into our homes, so we're doing fine. It's like, that's not doing fine. That's just dying a little slower. 
Brown's article touched a nerve, particularly with people in the trenches, those fighting the trends and working really hard to make their communities more attractive to the young people they desperately hope to hang on to, or failing that, to someday entice home. But there was so much good that didn't even make the article. That's what kind of was misleading for me. I, I was hoping it'd be more of a objective article. Rural Kansas is going to survive because we do have that sense of pride in our communities. We're not going to let them die. If you're looking for the negative, that's very easy to find. I wanted to see for myself, so I hit the road. First stop, Phillipsburg, a town of 2,600 on the high plains near the Nebraska border, directly north of Hayes. It's a gorgeous part of the state, driving through the region's chalk hills at dawn. Pastures of golden grass stretch through the valleys to the horizon. More than once, I was tempted to pull off the road, get out of the car, and take it all in. But I needed to get to Phillipsburg in time to catch up with the lieutenant governor. Thank you very much. This is exciting. Uh, Phillipsburg knows how to turn out, and I know we've got folks from Hayes and Stockton and all different parts in between. Um, you know, Rogers held a dozen of these meetings around the state. At each one, he asked those same three questions. An exercise aimed at pinpointing what's wrong and generating ideas about what might make things right. Modest expectations aside, one of rural Kansas's biggest boosters says any increased attention to the problems of small communities is welcome. It's just great to be listened to. I mean, just that means something to us. Marcy Penner runs the Kansas Sampler Foundation from a small complex that resembles a barn just outside of Inman in the middle of the state. Hey, Jim. Hi, Marcy. How are you? I'm good. You may already know about the foundation's guidebook. If not, it's definitely worth checking out. 480 pages of otherwise hard-to-find, sometimes arcane, but at least to me always interesting factoids about virtually every community in the state. It covers everything from the Cow Patty Golf Course near Grinnell to the collection of artifacts and personal stories from Kansans who endured the Dust Bowl at the Adobe Museum in Ulysses. Celebrating small victories in rural Kansas is Penner's passion, her life's work. She concedes that Brown's article reveals some hard truths, but she thinks it gives short shrift to the almost heroic work being done to keep small communities alive. I think it's easy to do the story on how rural is dying. I think it's hard, harder, to find the positive parts, but they're there. Maybe so, but the big picture doesn't appear to be all that positive. Almost two-thirds of Kansas counties peaked in population before the Great Depression. Many, says historian Virgil Dean, long before that. There are certain counties, quite a few counties, that peak uh, in the 1890 census in terms of total population and never recover. Uh, in To the, this day. To this day. Mm -hmm. uh, some... Uh, peak in 1890, and then they recover to a little bit higher level by 1930, and then they've never uh, reached that level again. In some cases, it's real dramatic. And like people, good jobs are scarcer than they used to be. That means more rural Kansans are living in poverty and without health insurance. The rural poverty rate is inching towards 14 percent, much higher than the rate in the state's urban areas. The story is roughly the same throughout the Great Plains, that middle tier of states that stretch from Canada all the way to Mexico. If you just look at the statistics, that's, yeah. It paints it, a certain picture. It does, it paints a certain picture, but you can't look at these towns as statistics. I just, 
think if you're looking for the negative, that's very easy to find. But I'll fight for these towns every day because there are young people moving back. There are good things going on. Um, it just might not look like what you're used to for what success looks like. And we're just all busy trying to repurpose our small towns. And it takes energy and you get tired and, and you get excited and you need a clubhouse and you need each other. Penner and Wendy Rowe, her life partner and the assistant director of the foundation, have created a virtual clubhouse. They bring Kansans who somewhat defiantly proclaim themselves rural by choice together in lots of ways. They organize duologues, gatherings to which only people ready to solve problems are invited. And they crisscross the state, handing out We Can Awards, that's can with a K, to unsuspecting people who Penner believes are difference makers. Corny, maybe. But Penner's been doing it since 1994, and the recognition definitely means something to those who get it. We are about to go in to the kettle to surprise B and Mandy with a Weekend Award. Come on. Husband and wife B and Mandy Fincham own and operate the kettle, a combination coffee shop, cafe, and wine bar in Beloit. Okay, go. I wonder why you do B. Fincham teaches at Beloit Elementary and helps out after hours in the Kettle's kitchen. Mandy Fincham runs the business. She gave up a good job as an economic development grant writer after convincing herself that Beloit, a town of about 3,800 in north-central Kansas, needed and could support a gathering spot. Someplace nice to meet for breakfast in the morning, a good cup of coffee pretty much any time, or join friends for a glass of wine or craft beer in the evening. Beloit, you are a lucky town to have these two here. And you know, B and Mandy, if, if your town didn't appreciate you, they wouldn't all be here. So, what we would like to do, this is a We Can Award to Mandy and B. Fincham. The name of the award is for giving Beloit a cool factor. <laughs> and, and that's what this place is. There's so many uh, towns across the state that would do anything to have a place like this. Boy, yeah. The We Can Award, stoneware fired from Kansas clay featuring the sampler logo, is prominently displayed among photos of musicians who have played at the kettle on the wall opposite my table as I sit down for breakfast and to chat with the Finchams. B and I are big social people. We love to go out and talk to people. We love to be a part of the community. Um, and we also love a good craft beer or a glass of wine. We love coffee. Uh, we had kids and we wanted a family-friendly place where you could still have an adult beverage with some live entertainment and feel comfortable bringing a three-year-old or a 12-year-old in here. So we didn't have a place like that in Beloit. So we did a little bit of research, and the more research we did, we realized that could work. So we just thought we don't want to be 80 and regret, have regrets. So we decided to try it, and so far it's been great. And you've made a pretty big business gamble here in a small community. And so what's your view? Are you Is the glass half empty or is it half full when it comes to rural communities? Well, I think Beloit is quite the gem. It's got a fantastic school system. It's got a fantastic hospital. It has a lot of 20, 30, 40-year-olds with uh, growing families. And I can't speak for the rest of rural America, but I know Beloit is a special place, and it needed a special place like Kettle. And, B, what do you have to say about that? 
I think the glass is what you make of it. And I think here in Beloit, it's half full. And it takes things like Kettle and people like us to make it half full and to continue filling that glass. Our main goal is having fun in life. So we made fun. We brought the fun to Beloit. Um, we're big proponents of the Kansas Sampler Foundation, and Marcy Penner was so generous to award us a We Can Award for bringing fun to Beloit. Um, that is what we're all about. That might sit shallow, but we <laughs> we like having fun, and um, we want to have other people around us have fun. But could you do this without your teacher salary? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, we couldn't. We need some stability because as much fun as this is, fun is not always stable. And uh, it's a roller coaster. You know, you know, rural Kansas, a smaller town, we don't have the populace to be consistently, you know, super busy and super full, uh, you know, of customers. So my salary needs to offset all the fun. <laughs> well, thank you both for spending a little time with me. Now it's, it's time for breakfast. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and coffee. Thank you. Thanks. A hip coffee shop stands out in a small town. It creates an urban sensibility, a kind of rural cool. But how much can it really do to prop up a town hit hard by depopulation and everything that goes with it? Well, that depends. Research being done at Iowa State University, led by rural sociologist Dave Peters, confirms that communities really can't do much on their own to reverse decades of population decline. But they can maintain a quality of life that makes it more likely that people will stay or someday come back. That is, if there are people in the community, particularly young people like B and Mandy Fincham, who are willing to step up and make things happen. Peters says they can be the difference between a shrinking but still livable town and one that has given up. And that's really what it takes. It takes, you know, you, know, you need a lot of people to step up and, 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 and take a leadership role. It's not going to happen otherwise. You know, you don't have large city governments. It needs to really come from, from citizens and residents. But the forces threatening rural communities can overwhelm the most determined efforts to counter them. Former Governor Mike Hayden grew up on a family farm near Atwood in northwest Kansas. And he's among those who have reluctantly concluded that the trend toward bigger farms and fewer farmers is, in large part, driving the exodus from rural Kansas. Well, we've had the same farm for 104 years. We still have it. And the truth is that it's more productive today than it's ever been. And in 1960, there were 17 people in our family whose major financial support was that farm. 17 in 1960. Today, today there are three people. From 17 to three. That says a lot about Kansas farming and the future of towns that sprung up to support it. We'll talk about how industrial agriculture is changing rural Kansas and what can or should be done about it next time on My Fellow Kansans. My Fellow Kansans comes from the Kansas News Service, a collaboration of public radio stations KMUW in Wichita, Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, High Plains Public Radio in Garden City, and KCUR in Kansas City. Jim McLean reported, wrote, and hosted the podcast. He also crisscrossed thousands of miles around the state to record dozens of conversations with his fellow Kansans. Scott Cannon and Suzanne Hogan edited the podcast script. Scott also edited digital stories, Jim wrote, that appeared at ksnewsservice.org. 
There are some great photographs of Kansas and Kansans there. Chris Neal shot most of them for us. Ben Stanton worked as field producer. That meant research, interviews, and organizing the recordings you just heard. I'm Beth Golay. I worked with Luann Stevens and Ben in the audio production. Primary Color Music composed our theme song, and other music you heard throughout the season came from Free Music Archive. Jordan Kirtley designed our logo. Event planning and social media promotion came together only with the help of Grace Lotz, Michael Russo, and Sarah Jane Crespo. This concludes episode one of this sixth episode season. We'll be back next week. And if you listened, maybe you want to support work like this with a contribution to the public radio station in Kansas you listen to most.